The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. With a litigation, you should be able to say what's going to happen. And you can't do that just by your own limited experience. Even though I've tried and had hundreds of cases, you really need data points from millions of cases in order to figure out what's going to happen. I need tools to do that. And the better law firms are the ones that are buying this technology, and they're going to just eat the lunch. Smaller firms, unfortunately, don't invest in these tools. Hey, all. It is wonderful to be back with you this week. Today, it's all about fighting for the little guy. Or (laughs) is it? The legal system is fascinating. I think we can all agree on that because there's so many different components to it. But what are we really trying to do here? At least from my lens, it's all about seeking justice for those who have been harmed and I guess protecting those in need, most in need, right? Over time, those ideals may have changed a little bit. They're twisted sometimes and maybe a little contorted. And what we're left with in some instances, and this is not a blanket for everything, it's sort of a Frankensteinish embodiment of that essence of the execution for these protections that we're talking about under the law, in my opinion. So one could argue that the class action suit that happens in the United States maybe is part of this monster. So we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth. So where did this all begin? Well, I think about Ralph Nader who, in my personal opinion, is the epitome of the consumer advocate, the guru for good and really a man for others trying to come up with the best ways for people to be helped by the law. One of the big things, one of his claim to fames uh, is helping getting seatbelts as mandated into the use of cars so that they were always there, right? Really kind of a no-brainer at this stage, so he pushed for that. So ultimately, this guy, in his pursuits of the ideal, the gold standard, basically epitomizes the way that the justice system, in my view, should work, or for the common good, right? That's the hope. That's a thought. Something has changed, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So litigiousness has become litigious in some respects. Uh, Certainly not all class action suits are frivolous or probably purely nonsensical rubbish, But sadly, some of these things have become way more commonplace, and that's probably not a good thing for the entire ecosystem. I personally get roughly six different requests per year um, for me to opt into a class action settlement. And what this amounts to is simply this. Here's an example. So uh, Facebook IPO. I actually bought a few shares the day that it opened up. And when I purchased it, let's say between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m., those executions of the stock didn't actually happen the millisecond that it was supposed to happen. So they formed a class action settlement around that. Another use case was four years ago, I bought um, some sunscreen and the sunscreen was purchased from a grocery store. Apparently there's some tiny, minute, uh, harmful something in that bottle. Well, they tracked me down and four years later, I said, hey, do you want to opt into this? You'll get $2 for every bottle that you bought. I think I bought one bottle, so I'll get $2 back for the $9 I spent. Yes. So those are the class action settlements that we see frequently in the U.S. Today, this is what brings it all around. 
is my guest, Ron Levine, who went to Princeton University undergrad and went to Harvard Law School, is truly a thoughtful realist and a proponent for good and a practitioner for what he preaches. But over 40 years as a litigator, you'll get to see what's happening behind those scenes, behind the scenes for these particular uh, class action settlements, the lack of transparency within these cases, and what he would do to improve the system. As a sidebar, we also talk about the Firestone and Ford settlement. And if you're not as familiar with this, quite simply, Ford Motor Company basically had these SUVs and they had these Firestone tires on them and at a certain speed, they would uncouple. So the actual tread would uncouple from the walls of the tire, resulting in accidents and some deaths. Beyond that, we get to dive into technology. And he is a crusader in this space, especially around litigation. He talks about e-discovery and the importance of technology in that space. We also look into the future, look into the future of what's going on in litigation, predicting models. He also talks about the antiquated rules in the United States, where attorneys have to have uh, ownership of the law firms. In the UK, you don't have to worry about this. You're already set with lawyers being able to do that sort of thing or non-lawyers be able to do that sort of thing. He also talks about crisis management, and this is really cool. So listen in for that. Lastly, if you're a lawyer or an attorney, you know these words well. Denial, anger, <laughs> bargaining, depression, and acceptance. These are the five stages of being a lawyer, right? No, I'm being silly. These are the five stages of grief, and you get to see how he applies these concepts to helping out his clients. Really kind of cool stuff. So I am really looking forward to this conversation with our legal sage, Ron. So let's get started. The Hearing. We are here today with Ron Levine, General Counsel of Herrick and Feinstein LLP in New York City. Welcome, Ron. How are you? Great. Excellent. Happy to be here. Oh, it's lovely to have you here. So uh, you went to Princeton undergrad and Harvard Law School. Who do you root for now? <laughs> well, if they're on the hard courts or if they're Actually, playing any, uh, any sports. Probably, I, I, I don't want to get in too much trouble, <laughs> but uh, I tried to root for Princeton. I live in Princeton, actually, and I went back to Princeton um, for my 10th reunion, and I found a house there with my wife, and we've lived there ever since. So... Um, I'm a real Princeton person. Okay. So I loved Harvard Law School. I'm sure you get it. And Harvard's yeah. great, but I think in, the, in in our country we try to uh, root for our college. I think more than more than even our graduate school. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I have a question. A few friends that went to Princeton and they always talk about the eating clubs. What? In the world are eating clubs at Princeton University. They're the Princeton version of fraternities, oh. and, and they date back forever. Uh, at one time, they were uh, you had to be interviewed for them, and they were very exclusive. But some of them have opened up. Uh, actually, Woodrow Wilson, when he was president, tried to reform the whole system there because there were actually students who didn't even get into a eating club, and they were kind of banished from the university. It was very controversial. Were they malnourished? That's <laughs> yeah, a good question. Um, it, it's changed a lot, but uh, that's another sort of a world within the world of Princeton. And F. Scott Fitzgerald talked about that in his novels as well. So it's a it's a very unique place, Princeton. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like that. And the eating club I always thought was just associated with food, but it sounds like there's much more going on. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Okay, fascinating. So um, taking a step back maybe a little bit. 
So currently you are a general counsel we talked about, um, but you're dealing with all sorts of legal issues that face law firms, including like conflicts as well as uh, requests for records, billing, engagement letters, things of that nature. And you've also been, I guess, a litigator for over 40 years. Is that right? That's correct. Oh, wow. That's unbelievable. Some notable cases you worked on, I include Ford and the Firestone debacle that we had uh, here in the U.S. I don't think our clients would call it a debacle, <laughs> but uh, it, it, was a, it was a major litigation uh, right around, uh, actually, right before 9-11. It was, it was one of the major news stories. Um, in fact, uh, the, the morning of 9-11, uh, I think that the Ford Firestone cases were the lead, one of the lead stories in the news. So that's wow. what was going on at the time, yeah. Goodness. Um, so along those lines, as you started to prepare for, for what you've done in your career, what brought you there? What was it that sort of inspired you to go to law school uh, and then go down the, the path that you eventually did? Uh, I grew up in a family where my uh, father was in politics and uh, my mother was uh, interested in law as well. Actually, my mother went to law school the same three years that I did. And we, that's, <laughs> you went together? I, that's right. Just as an aside, we were. Um, I was studying for the uh, exam you take to get into law school, sitting at the kitchen table in my house. My mother was teaching uh, secondary school, and she said, well, I'll ask you some of these questions. They asked me some of the questions, was doing much better than I did, <laughs> took the exam, probably did better than I did in the same three years that I went to law school. She went to law school. I went to Harvard, and she went to Hofstra law school. We took the bar exam with uh, her sitting right behind me. In fact, I wasn't <laughs> feeling that well that day and she, she made me lunch and uh, we got sworn in together. Uh, a funny story uh, related to that. Um, in New York, you have to be interviewed for the bar. There's a committee on character. So in addition to taking the bar exam, you're interviewed to see if you're a decent human being. Right. <laughs> Very controversial because questions there's issues in, about should they prevent people from becoming lawyers because of some questionable incident when they were younger, for example. Anyway, I was being interviewed by someone in New York at, uh, on the bar committee, and he said, so as I have a question. Um, have you ever used marijuana? I said, boy, you're asking personal questions. My mother's outside. <laughs> and the uh, examiner said, you brought your mother? And I said, no, she's being interviewed next. <laughs> so uh, that was, but back, um, I was always interested in legal issues. I recall when I was in third grade, uh, one of the questions the teacher asked is, who are your heroes? And I remember saying, Ralph Nader. Wow. Uh, who was a consumer advocate and had just gotten started. And I don't know where I heard about him, but um, I kind of idolized him. And uh, he had gone to the same schools that I wound up going to. He went to Princeton and uh, Harvard Law. And uh, after that, I, I was interested in, in political actions. I was interested in um, what was going on in Washington at the time as I grew up. I was very interested in uh the uh, Vietnam War um, and the draft and things like that. And it was kind of, uh, it was all over. And I had spent some years actually when I was in college in Washington working for a U.S. senator, which piqued my interest even further in the law. And I actually thought I was going to go into politics. Hmm. But um, when I was in law school, I, I was sort of convinced that 
working in a law firm was what real lawyers did. And you get that experience first before you go into politics. I now never went to politics and I've been at the same law firm now for more than 35 years. So uh, that's how I um, sort of pursued my career. <laughs> Have you ever met Ralph Nader before? Uh, I've met him, yes. Uh, his uh, associates have been adversaries in some of the cases I've worked on. In fact, my career has been more on the other side, uh -huh. which is um, when I if when I applied to law school and I filled out my uh, essay, I wrote down, I want to be Ralph Nader. <laughs> and uh, by the time I graduated from uh, law school, I had a very different perception of the world of law. And uh, it kind of bothered me a little bit. But I think that one thing that the legal education sort of give sort of imprints on you is that it's an adversarial system and everyone has to be able to argue either side of the story so i started saying well maybe i could argue a case you know against ralph nader when i was graduating the um at the time sort of a sign of your uh status and your uh where you stood in the uh, sort of the world of law was in what law firm you got a offer and um, the bigger and better uh, corporate law firm meant the a lot. White shoes of the White world, shoe yes. law firms, exactly. And uh, very few students actually went to work for public interest firms at the time. And, and uh, today it's very different. But I think that we were, the message came loud and clear when we were in law school that, you know, you go through this whole system when you're in your second and third year of interviewing, getting a summer associate job, and eventually working for one of these prestigious firms, which is what sort of is a marker of your career, or you would clerk for a judge at a law school. Wow. So when you've been involved with class action suits, how, how do you sort of resolve this purist sort of Ralph Nader view on things versus maybe a different side? How do you sort of bring those together? How do those align in your world? Um, I have been up against uh, so many different plaintiffs in these cases that I have convinced myself, perhaps more so, that the system isn't really working well for the public interest side of things. I have great respect for public interest lawyers and the issues they're addressing, um, where they're doing it purely for the social issue, where they're trying to make a change. But um, many cases are filed by lawyers for an economic reason. And um, I don't think they're making changes that they should be focusing on. They're focusing more on what my clients are some, my clients have called blackmail almost, that there's a threat of a, in the, of a class action being filed. Often um, we will, our clients will get a letter in the mail saying, if you don't do something and pay us up, we'll file a class action. And the clients have to face the uh, issue of whether or not they're going to make some payment to these lawyers or not. And I don't think that's a very good system that we have in this country. And I've also watched the results of cases that do get filed as class actions, and they do not, uh, I feel, result in very good results often for the consumers, that there are better ways to do it. The real winners are the lawyers and not the consumers in the system we have right now. Well, how would you, I mean, if you had... Uh all the means available to you. How would you go about changing that? Um, I would, one change I have actually uh, advocated is um, letting the public know the results of the um, class action um, claimant offering. So if a case gets settled, 
uh, we the consumers really don't know and the public doesn't know what happened after the settlement was made. So, for example, um, a company is suing over a label and um, a product was sold for $2 and the claim was that the label was misleading because the product allegedly was all natural. Right. And um, that's led to hundreds of lawsuits in this country. Um, and the claim is that it wasn't all natural because it had some ingredient in it which wasn't natural. So the public was misled and the lawsuits filed and the company made agree to take the ingredient out or change the label in the end and agree to a settlement. And the company may have sold millions of dollars worth of this product. What's done often is the the court enters into a settlement agreement. Very few, if any of these cases, ever get tried in the courtroom. And a settlement agreement is entered into, and there are a few parts to it. The lawyers get a fee, and they'll say, we put in hundreds of hours working on this, and the court will award them a few hundred thousand or, or even over a million dollars in legal fees. And the court will approve that. And the court will say, we'll set up a fund, and that fund will be paid out to consumers. All they have to do is send in some receipt. So a notice will go out, and consumers have to decide, do I want to waste my time mailing in a form, trying to find the receipt from this candy bar <laughs> or something I bought uh, before, and they may not. And many of these cases turn out that there are very, very few claims filed. And the money may, there's, it's been very controversial what should happen to the money when no one makes a claim. Um, so the court, the plaintiffs will say, set aside a fund of, say, a million dollars, because that's how they justify their multi-million, their large uh, attorney's fees. But um, the fact is that a very tiny percentage of the consumers will make a claim. And um, then the money just sits there or it gets sent over, paid over some other fashion. But um, that, to me, is not delivering much to the consumers. And the problem, what the reform would be, is I think that the public and the courts should disclose what the percentages were of the claims, and often they're not. And no one really knows what happened afterwards. I think that would change the system. So that's one reform. I would also make it much more difficult to pursue a class action um, in this country it, there's very low barriers, and that's one of the beauties of our legal system, to filing a lawsuit. You can pay a couple of hundred dollars as a filing fee and just file anything. Um, and uh, there isn't a lot of repercussions for uh, frivolous claims. Uh, we don't have a loser pays system in this country. So um, you can bring a claim, and if you're, you know, it's too bad that both the defendant could have paid our law firm, another law firm, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees and and have and it was kind of a nonsense claim that was filed uh, or it led nowhere. Uh, so um, it's it's a big problem. So like, I, I, if you can speak to this, I'm kind of curious, the Ford and Firestone case, um, did they also set up sort of this like, trust full of money and then that money was paid there, out? Or That was really not. There were class actions involved, but class actions are much preferred for smaller claims or they were started more for civil rights type claims to represent a group of people who individually didn't have the money to bring a claim and had to band together um, to bring the claim. And that's very true for consumer claims. But if you're in an individual accident, like a car accident, that doesn't really lend itself to a class action because each story is so unique. 
that the courts are not interested in trying to have a thousand different little trials. Uh, so those don't usually turn into class actions. But uh, you know, any company making a consumer product has to be prepared for uh, litigation in this country. I tell that everyone, and I think uh, I was talking about food. The food industry was kind of surprised that they became a target of class actions more recently in the last few years because we've seen other large tort cases kind of winding up and then the same lawyers who are following those cases have now moved on to the food and now they're moving on to cosmetics, cosmetics. Yeah. in this country. But it was the uh, tobacco industry, it was the asbestos industry. Uh, certainly we hear every day about the pharmaceutical industry um, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's huge numbers. I mean, we're kind of immune to reading in the newspaper that there was a billion dollar judgment entered by a jury and you know, the jury's just going to hear that one little story and not think about the bigger picture. No, it, it is fascinating. I've heard recently something on the news. They were talking about how um, the cosmetic industry is definitely going to be the, the sort of the next big one that might get hit by this. Because one uh, pharmaceutical or one group basically said that uh, a lot of the chemicals that they're using, it was like a whistleblower basically said a lot of the chemicals they're using, they would never allow their children to ever use it was like a sunscreen or something along those lines because there's chemicals in there that, that apparently haven't tested yet now who knows if that's the case or not right but it sounds like that's maybe another industry that's going to sort of take off in this space well there are chemicals in everything yes. of course and the question is what level the chemical poses a threat and uh the problem with a lot of these cases is that they find a tiny percentage of a chemical in a product uh it's very easy to go public through social media right. and say we found lead or some other hazardous cancer-causing ingredient in this uh, cosmetic and um, scare the company and affect its sales and suddenly it's on the news because that sells it doesn't sell uh, pro, you know the media to say this product is safe it, the media is interested in things that are unsafe and uh, that will sell and it's it's a problem for companies so what they what are they going to do <laughs> no question yeah. So you've had to deal with uh, five stages of grief. Is it something along those lines that you've had to you've talked about before with uh, with some of your clients? Yeah, the five stages of grief that had to do with unfortunately uh, death. And oh. uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross uh, came up in psychology with the five stages of grief: denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And um, I started seeing that with my clients but in the setting of lawsuits. And um, if you're a, a very proud uh, consumer company, going back to that, uh, and suddenly a lawsuit comes in and it says your product is dangerous because it has lead in it, right. and you say, what are they kidding? Um, you know, it, it, They'll go through a process of anger and denial saying, let's fight this case. And um, that's music to the, a lawyer's ears because lawyers we get paid often mostly on the defense side by the hour. So um, if a client wants to fight, that means lots of lawyers, <laughs> lots of hours, and lots of money. Um, and uh, we'll, unfortunately, many lawyers will play along with that and let the case proceed and run up the time and fight it, knowing eventually it's gonna get settled. 90% uh, plus of cases get settled which haven't been dismissed. And um, I think that's a fact. 
uh, I try to tell clients uh, they may not want to settle. They don't want to encourage other lawsuits and uh, set a bad example. They want to show they'll fight, but the fight is really not known. What's known is the initial story, which is that a lawsuit was filed, a couple of articles if we lose motions, and eventually after the bills have mounted up, uh, they'll say, you know, we're going nowhere with this case. It's been going on for a year now, and uh, it's cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars of defense costs. What do I got to show for it? Why don't you call them up and see what we can do to get rid of it? Well, at this point, the other side has now run up hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own time, and to settle it's going to cost us a lot of money because, as I said, we're paying legal fees to the plaintiffs in these class actions. So what I try to tell the clients is, Let's look at the end of the movie uh, earlier than later. Um, and in my business, that's not a very popular thing to say because we're supposedly gladiators, anxious to fight. And if a client comes into my office and I start saying the dirty word settle, they'll uh, think maybe I should go next door to the other law firm because uh, this guy is talking settlement and it doesn't show he doesn't believe in me, you know. But I, I try to show reality. I look at other cases. I, I, can sh I keep track of cases. I show what their other, you know, what's going to happen, how long this case is going to go on, how much it's going to cost you. And we talk about settlement. In one case, or actually more than one case, uh, I actually got hired as settlement counsel. So it was kind of a two-track. That was your title? No, yeah, actually <laughs> it was. I, uh, a client came, uh, I said to a client, you know, I think this case could be settled. And they were using another law firm. So the other law firm continued as the gladiator fighting it. And in the back, I called up the plaintiff and I said, you know, can we try to settle? He says, thank goodness you called. <laughs> I had the case settled very quickly. And, um, you know, that's what they want, actually. The uh, plaintiffs are not interested in running the clock. They want to go on to their next case. They want to get as much as they can out of it as quickly as they can. So how did the gladiator feel? Gladiator, like the gladiator had to accept the fact that the case kind of ended. Um, yeah, no, no, there are plenty of lawyers. I, I love the battle too, but I don't like wasting clients' money. That's uh, what I think is uh, the result of too many lawsuits in this country. No, that, that makes a lot of sense, and that seems very good of you, no question. So I think part of what you've gone through, the next stage might be even sort of this the crisis management. Um, is that something you have to advise your, your clients and on. Yeah, every lawsuit that um, gets picked up uh, is a potential crisis or is a crisis for the company, especially for companies which are not used to getting sued. We all know which companies are in the news all the time and they're kind of used to it, but there are others that it may be the first time they faced a lawsuit and um, they need training on how to uh, deal with uh, what I call a, a crisis. Um, for them, and they may not even realize it's a crisis uh, until the media picks it up and it's spread all over the news. <laughs> I'm really curious to hear your perspective on technology, what impact you think it might have on attorneys. I have found that the changes in the legal profession since I graduated from law school are so profound that I sit in amazement every day that I'm a lawyer is what's happened and what impresses me is that my colleagues are so far behind the curve in what's going on. There are dramatic changes in the uh, legal profession, yet my generation grew up handwriting briefs, typing them on typewriters, not understanding how to use um, 
things like artificial intelligence and other, other tools like that, that I, I've almost taken it as a crusade to try to educate my colleagues. I am very interested, for example, in electronic discovery. I've taught it for a few years in law school, and I've been championing uh, dealing with it because in my litigation experience, I found that e-discovery and, and emails can make or break a case. Uh, one bad email uh, can destroy you. So I've, I've actually gone out and given lectures to clients on how to write an email. And applying what I call the I call it the New York Times rule, but you can call it any newspaper, which is don't write anything unless you'd like to see it on the front page of the New York Times. And in fact, I've made up a a um, a pad, a mouse pad that says "Think twice, click once," and I, and I handed it out to clients. So um, that to me is uh, I'm trying to show as an example in my law firm that even an older lawyer like myself can learn and, and accept um, technology. I was the first uh, attorney in my law firm to have a BlackBerry. I was the first attorney to have a laptop. And I've been trying to promote all of these things because I think uh, lawyers are going to um, have to change what they're selling. Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating is clients just won't pay for hours and hours of lawyers uh, reading documents, the, research the things, the things documents, we used to make a lot of money. And the question really comes down to is pricing. So one hour of my time should be worth thousands of dollars, in my humble opinion, versus, <laughs> you know, but I can only charge for an hour. Right. Yet, uh, that is the question is how do we price it? Because really all you need lawyers for is questions. What do you need lawyers for anymore <laughs> is a better question. So that's been fascinating to me. So I've been out uh, trying to use technology and learn about how it's being used in all kinds of things. I'm teaching a, a course now, a master's course on food and cosmetics regulation, totally online. I have 38 students and I've never met any of them. If you were to speculate within the next like three to five, even 10 years out, what do you think it looks like based on what you're starting to see with AI and workflow solutions and all of that? Uh, well, in litigation, which is what I've been doing, I think it's prediction and uh, giving the client a better sense of what's going to happen in a case. The things I've been talking about, uh, information about the judge, information about the, um, the claims, uh, give the client the odds of what's going to happen. Because if you uh, sort of factor out the future and you do a chart, you should be able, if you're a good lawyer, to say, have the, it's just like going to a doctor and saying, you know, what's going to happen? What kind of disease do I have? And, you know, you, so when you have cancer, they say you need six months of chemotherapy and we'll cure you. With a litigation, you should be able to say what's going to happen. And you can't do that just by your own limited experience. Even though I've tried and had hundreds of cases, you really need data points from millions of cases in order to figure out what's going to happen. And I'm incapable of doing that. I need tools to do that. And, and the better law firms, the ones that um, are the ones that are buying these, this technology, and they're going to just eat the lunch of smaller firms, unfortunately, that don't invest in these tools. And uh, I, that's what's happening in our business. Do you think there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the medium law firm space? Um, I think there will always be a need for specialist boutique law firms, but uh, clients seem to like one-stop shopping. I might say that one of the models that I believe in is that you should have 
um, managers of claims. So I should be able to put together a team of, of specialists for any matter. Just because I'm a member of a law firm doesn't mean I'm the specialist. Unfortunately, many clients go to a single law firm. That's the model. But in this country, if you, most claims are very, very specialized. So I should be able to find the best person in the country for that problem or the world and put together the wonder team and picking and choosing. So what you need are business managers for clients finding people and may not be at the same law firm. Unfortunately, law firms don't turn away business and they'll pretend they know something about a problem and uh, probably they're not the right place to do it. What about uh, some of the consulting companies like the EMYs of the world, Ertz and Youngs, the PWCs, they're starting to make headway in this space. Do you think that's going to have an impact on some of those global large law firms? Yeah, the problem with the consulting firms is that our, we have very antiquated rules for lawyers in this country, and there's a line of saying, what is a, real, what is a lawyer, how do you practice law versus what's a consultant? Uh, I've done consulting, and uh, I have to draw a line and say, well, but I'm not your lawyer in this matter, I'm your consultant, and that means I can't provide legal advice. Uh, this country has been very down on corporations um, getting involved in, in legal services, unlike other countries. So we can't uh, go public with shares and stock. It has to be done as a partnership. Uh, you know, we're still living basically in the 18th century in a lot of ways in the way we practice law in this country. So the model they have in the UK, or you think that would be something that could go over well here in the US? I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that we're, we don't spend enough time studying what's going on in other countries in terms of regulations, in terms of the way law firms are delivering services to, understood, to try to adapt them. Fortunately, a number of UK firms have come into the market here and made drastic changes. And why are they doing so well here is a good question. I think that they have better models than some of the US firms have had. Yeah, fascinating. Really is true. Um, so one of the things you talked about before was crisis management. Uh, is there anything outside of the law that really helped you help resonate the, the, the processes that you go through, the understanding that you have for that, that um, you'd like to share? Well, um, 10 years ago, when I was busy with some of the matters we've been talking about, I uh, discovered a, um, uh, a growth on my neck. Actually, I was on a cruise ship. I went to the uh, cruise doctor who was down on the third level of this cruise ship in the Mediterranean, and he was from Poland. I remember he looked at it and he says, uh, sir, you have cancer. And I oh. said, what are you kidding me? Um, I was celebrating my daughter's graduation from college. I was with my family. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a mosquito bite. And uh, I went home, saw my internist, and he said, well, that's what you get for $90 on a cruise ship. It's, uh, <laughs> oh, it's nothing. And I said, no, he, this doctor was very, very scared and upset. So he sent me for some tests, and sure enough, he was correct. Uh, oh, wow. The man, the doctor on that cruise ship, uh, really uh, saved me. And so I then turned out I had what was called uh, Hodgkin's, what's called as Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is um, a very curable form of cancer, fortunately for me. Uh, but I did go through six months of uh, chemotherapy and radiation. Uh, I was very open about it. Uh, I've just, I know that many people who go through these um, uh, crises, personal crises, don't want to talk about them. The, if you tell someone you had cancer, the assumption that somehow you know, you're know you doomed and uh, people are afraid of those words. And uh, I said to myself immediately, I'm, I've got a crisis on my hands. I was busy with my clients. Uh, I was chairman 
of my litigation department. I was in the middle of many uh, significant cases for my clients. And what was I going to do? Telling them I had cancer and I'd be having chemo. So did you I, tell them? I told them. I applied the same standards of crisis management. I applied to uh, a class action or anything else. One of the rules I tell clients is don't say no comment. Lawyers don't like to talk about <laughs> things because they're afraid it will impact the uh, matter. I believe in being very transparent and very open. I uh, told everyone what was going on. I kept them informed. I reassured them. And uh, I um, applied all of the lessons I, I tried to Fantastic. for myself. Yeah. And I provided my own firm with my medical records. And I, I now... Um, try to talk to other lawyers and professionals about it because there isn't a lot of support groups. Uh, they, some people kind of roll up in a ball if they find out these things. Um, personally, I just think you'll, you'll power through it. We all know someone who's had cancer. Um, you know, we're not all, thank God, dying from it now, though some unfortunately uh, can't get through it. Um, but I think you have to have some tolerance and understanding that, in fact, working can be a terrific uh, antidote to a, a disease and I continued to work and I, I think it was very important to me to be able to work while I went through the treatment. That's amazing. And you're feeling well now? Very well. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. Thank well, you. What a way to sort of apply sort of your philosophy to life to uh, your clients as well and then applying it to yourself too. So that's fantastic. Well, Ron, thank you so much thank for taking you. the time today. Really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.